0: plot twists we're obsessed with them
1: in film life and love they turn up everywhere
0: it's that moment in a story where it takes you in an unexpected direction
1: i'm tom comedy and impressions lover
0: and i'm fran super fan of reality tv and rom-coms and we're from now
1: and throughout this series we're going to be interviewing tv and film stars asking them all about their favorite plot twists both on and off screen
0: so expect the unexpected, and hopefully some behind-the-scenes gems that you've never heard before. Contain spoilers. Obviously.
1: Well, it's the middle of May. The UK is opening up. And Fran, I bet your diary is gonna be full up now until the end of <laughs> bloody December.
0: You joke about it. But someone no, the other day asked I'm me serious. if I had a free Friday in July and August, and I had one. That's just madness. A single You've just got lone one Friday, extreme so to the other. You better put me in, Tom, or I'll be seeing you in 2023. <laughs> do you know what?
1: It's, it's, <laughs> it's not completely out of the... Uh, Realms
0: of possibility. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I do genuinely feel like a kid at Christmas. The world is opening up again. We've got exciting stuff to look forward to. And it was great that this week we got to speak to Russell Kane because, let's face it, there's nothing better in person Stomach. than stand-up comedy there's just some things you cannot beat no
1: it's the energy isn't it and that's certainly what russell brings and as you know fran i'm a comedy lover so it's right up my street
0: comedy lover
1: <laughs> but yes russell Kane, we know for many stand-up tours over the years he's done all the big comedy shows on tv uh, i loved him in drunk history he's hilarious on that uh, he's got his podcast evil genius which is a brilliant podcast by the way and uh, he's been on i'm a celeb he's been a presenter as well on there on the itv spin-off show
0: And Russell Kane, out of anyone, really, is the sort of character that just feeds off that energy of a live audience.
1: He's like a Duracell bunny. The man doesn't stop. He's constant. 100 miles an hour. All the time. Um, (laughs) And he's also, he's just a very, he's very articulate. He's an intelligent comedian. Mm. He's very interested in literature. And it's just, he's a unique comedian. Yeah. Well, Fran, we've both been watching a lot of Russell's sketches from the past. And one thing that I love from his stand-up routine is when he's talking about holidays, obviously quite personal at the moment, and this whole idea of Brits abroad.
0: Yeah, I know, and how a uh, non-moron weekend, which is very cultured and classy, very can quickly, quickly tumble into a moron weekend when the boozed-up Brits turn up, which, let's face it, no judgement here, I'm hopefully going to be one of them. This summer.
1: Almost certainly will be. And that's where we started <laughs> with Russell Kane on the Plot Twist podcast. Well, Russell, welcome to Plot Twist. I wanted to start because everything is opening up. We're allowed to travel. We're allowed to stay overnight very soon at least. Uh are you planning a non moron weekend or week away? <laughs> a non moron or a moron? Well, either. No, no, I'm planning
2: a more reckon? a more on weekend away is what I'm planning.
1: Oh, okay. I want to yeah. get,
2: to, I want to get if Ibiza reopens and I'm in the two jab crew as we're going to be known, <laughs> then I will be heading there for at least closing parties. I just want to see what it Ocean Beach Club looks like with Wayne Linick as the youngest one there because most of the people in Ibiza this year are going to be seventy year olds, so it'd be good to go there and feel so youthful. Now, what I really need a more on night out. I need to go clubbing, get in, you know, at six in the morning eating kebabs or unable to eat kebabs even better. So that's the type of thing I'm looking for. I will, and an even more Moron thing to do would be to go for an all-inclusive holiday where you don't even leave the confines of the hotel or experience any culture whatsoever. It just, that feels like but heaven. You, but you
1: can't book them at the moment. All well, I got book, yeah, well, I already have. them up. I've booked, yeah. I love
2: you. Yeah, well, I booked, uh, two months ago, I booked somewhere, I think, and they're on free cancellation up to a week before you go. So there's literally nothing to lose. So I've if done if the they same. Open up, yeah, so I've got Portugal, which I'd I, I done the research and I thought Portugal so, I, but Port, my hack for Portugal—if you want a plot twist on where to go in Europe—no, <laughs> um, no, I'm my, I'm a massive fan of this book. I, before, I came from stand, you know, into stand up. I was a copywriter, so I worked in creative planning and idea development, and things like that. It stabbed me in really, put me in really good stead for this industry as well. And I'm a massive fan of ideas that don't make sense on the surface because no one else does them. Now, 99 out of 100 of those ideas will turn out to be shit. But one out of 100 will turn out to be Red Bull, a drink that stinks of medicine that fails all taste tests, that's overpriced for the size of its can. It failed every marketing test you could do on it, Red Bull, every single one. And they launched it and it worked. Because of those things, mm. so when they when I heard about the the um, viral cases in Europe, I was like, right, where has got the lowest cases? Where's likely to get the the green light? This is a month ago, so I saw Portugal. Mm. Every bell end on the planet will head to the Valle de Lobo or Algarve, another sardine lifted out of the ocean, <laughs> twats. <laughs> Do mostly, unless you're incredibly middle class, which you both are, unfortunately, uh, you will not know anyone who's been to Lisbon. We just don't go there. All we know is we share a time zone with it. It's one of the most beautiful, historic, windy road hotels with pools on rooftops, beaches within sightline. No one goes mm. there. It doesn't make sense because everyone hates it. So that's where I've booked Portugal. Nice. So did Lisbon, you do that though?
0: before it was all announced? So you. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. Secure your was weeks
2: up Pencil to St Lucia as well. I won't do both of them. I'm taking two holidays through to judges' houses and only one or more will I find. So this sort of counterintuitive thinking, I'm a massive fan of. It's really good, obviously, for writing jokes and stand-up because you, the your end of a sentence goes where the opposite direction to where everyone else was thinking. But it's great for idea development and and just, just generally
1: life, life skills. I was going to say it's a big part of your comedy, um, and we're going to come on to that, but before we do... We've got an abrasive feature that's a random question generator, and these are just—I mean, look—you must get asked the same questions again and again and again. Like, do you always feel pressure to be funny? And all, we want to ask you something a bit different, okay? Uh, to get to know you for the listeners and, and for each other. So, uh, these are four that we've pulled out. That these are the first four that, that came up through this website that we used. So, we'll start. What do you secretly judge people on? i probably
2: secretly judge people who eat shit, but I haven't got the courage to to say it (laughs) because it's not very fashionable if someone eats a burger to to think that they're filthy because they eat junk food. But inside... It just it just repulses me because I used. To, I think it's because I used to eat so much of it, and I did so many tours. Mm. Like with a Ginster's logo, probably temporarily manifested itself <laughs> on my pancreas. Just <laughs> when I was, I would imagine I was in a pre-diabetic state on my fifth tour. Um, and once I gave it up, it's like giving up smoking. The, mm. the thought of it. Well, Ex smokers yeah, are worse than that. non-smokers for hating on smokers, but it's fine to hate on smokers. You go, that's disgusting. If I was to point to some people eating junk food in the street and go, "You've got no self-respect," you know, I'd be cancelled <laughs> for like not <laughs> hating on poor people or something, probably. So, I would, I would say, I see, I secretly judge people for eating shit, and I, I would never dare say it.
1: I would with the right friends, probably i'll just tell them straight but yeah generally probably not not even um, not even with my no. mates
2: i don't think it's, it's you just got to leave people alone with stuff like that you've got to let them have their first heart attack and then just do an eyebrow <laughs>
0: <laughs> a bit of a that's that's what would you say
1: if they don't learn from that they're not going to learn <laughs> um i've got a bit more of a personal one for the next one how did you meet your best friend um well we met at swimming when i was eight i said
2: well, I've got two best friends, but one one sort of uh, moved away to Spain, so I don't see him as much anymore. So we met, our mums were next to each other in the hospital beds when we were born, but Mark emigrated about eight years ago, so I don't see him as much now. And then Dan, my other best mate, we met at swimming lessons when we were eight, and we should teed it off. And we've been friends ever since.
0: That's great. I don't think you can beat one where you met them lying in the hospital, like born in hospital beds <laughs> next moms. to each other. I feel that's meant. Well, to be. my mum
2: and Gabriella, my mum and Gabriella are still best friends. It's just that Mark's emigrated to Spain with the Spanish girl, but me, uh, but myself and Dan, who we met at swimming, we've done everything together. We've gone through the Dungeons and Dragons stage, the first girlfriend stage, the Ibiza stage, which we've chosen to remain at, and now we've sort of got, <laughs> yeah, we we've just got both, stuck there. We, bo- <laughs> we both had kids at the same time. We got married roughly the same
1: time. So we've just uh. done everything in the same. You know, something really unique about that kind of friendship when you've had that through school and through you know progressing through like different life stages. Um, I feel like this is almost like inside the actor's studio. Uh, this is uh, what do you do to unwind
2: wine, uh, gummies sometimes, which are fucking fantastic together or separately? Yeah, no, no, never together. Uh, but, what, <laughs> but, but that would only be a very occasional treat because I have to really, it's like an athlete has to their body you have to treat your your brain really in this game. And I even have to do that with my body because it's a very high energy act. So I have to stay in my I fucking hate exercise. I find it so boring and tedious. But I have to stay in shape. Otherwise I can't do my sort of Lee Evans on crack type acts. Mm. But it's Lee Evans plus my observations sort of quite sociological so I've got to keep the brain sharp, which means I can't abuse myself as much as I would love to it's not out of any puritanism but definitely red wine and I mean I, you're not capturing video I know fair listeners but if you look the whole room is just covered in in books every single wall mm. this whole office I just love reading I'm reading Shuggy Bane at the moment I know I'm a bit late to the party but the book that won the book I believe the hype oh my god What an amazing book. I mean, this week I've read, um, what was I read, Shula by Tony Morrison. I read The Party by Elizabeth Day last week. So I'm into my third book in like 17 days. I mean, I am obviously off work because I'm selfish cuntate, a bat in China. But uh, <laughs> I still read. That's the one thing I would like to take out of this is I would like to read more in the back of the car because I read when I'm sat down and chilling in this beautiful office, which I'm blessed to have. I've got these chairs here. I've got the screen that drops down there if I ever want to watch a film. And I know, But when I get in the back of the car and, I'm, and my tour manager's doing like a six-hour drive, I never read. I just watch mm. normally shit not not even arty movies not a nomad or anything it'll be like an Arnold Schwarzenegger or something whereas I want to get my little reading light and carry that on because I've really enjoyed I mean I've always clearly loved reading but just sitting there for hours on end you can go anywhere with a book. You can buy it secondhand. You can borrow it from the library. It's the lowest budget trip you can go on. And it's and it's how I got to where I am. I had to read my way out of the ghetto with books for shovels.
1: Well, didn't you win Mastermind? Didn't you come? Yes. With...
2: Evelyn Waugh, W in the fiction section. Yeah. Evelyn War.
0: I was going to ask coming out of lockdown, you obviously mentioned you want to read a bit more, but is there anything else now that the world is opening back up a little bit that you definitely have learned in the last year that will change your behaviours moving forward?
2: Not really. That's the, one of the worst things about COVID for me has been how much I loved my life and it was, it was mm. quite all right as it was before pangolin sandwich smacked down on someone's plate in Wuhan. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I, I, love my life. I love, tra- I love travel. I love being on an airplane. Mm, the longer the flight, the better. 24 hours to Australia, bring it the fuck on in my pajamas. No phones, heaven, movies, books, people waiting on your hand and foot. Yes, please. I've, I'm lucky I'm at a stage in my career where I've got a tour manager. So I get pampered in the back of a nice car, whatever car we're leasing. I have my little table set up on my Mark suspenses Spencer's feet. I just, I loved my life. The only bit that was stressful about my life was missing um, home, missing Lindsay and Minna. My, my, my wife and my daughter. But there's no way around that. You've got to travel to the theatres and, I don't want to like going. That's what I've learned is I want to do less stand up and be at home more because I haven't learned that. Mm. I've got that is just the cost of what I of the blessed existence I leave is I have to be away from home and sleep in beds that aren't mine more often than not. Mm. Other than that, bring it on. I love going out for dinner. I love getting absolutely ratted with Lindsay. I love dancing. I love partying. I've never grown (laughs) out of it. I fucking love techno, hard house. I can't wait to get back out there. My, um, I'm um, getting friendly with a DJ who lives up here, Enzo, Zaragoza. is like a big IB for DJs. He's got his kids in the same school as mine. So we started chatting online and he's got a night in fabric in July the 24th. I don't plan to get in before sunset. Bring it on.
0: <laughs> but you're just like ticking off nice. the days on the calendar, like waiting to get there. Um, I, so do, look, I this... just like to
2: live I mean, you never know. You never know, do you? So many people die at 40, die at 50, die at 60. Yeah, I just, yeah. just yeah. Think, suck the marrow out of every... F- fucking day i don't have superior intelligence or anything more than anyone else what all i've got more than anyone else is energy i have no idea why i was born like it i've always been like it everyone's told me you're gonna burn you'll be burned out by the time you're 30 35 but it's nothing no no dimming if anything it's worse the only cost i pay is i i need eight to nine hours sleep every night always have done to recharge go with less
0: recharge yeah well look this is the plot twist podcast so our first big plot twist question for you when you sort of look back at your career what would you say is the most sort of unexpected twist or turn that has happened to you so far
2: well doing stand up i mean when you say when if we say use career as in your sort of your life career i've already had mm. about 3 careers i'm relatively young to have had 3 full careers I was uh, I did got quite far in jewelry and buying and selling uh, watches, and I thought oh, that's what I'm going to do because that's where I come from. You work, that's what you do. Your, your mum's a cleaner, your dad's a manual labourer, and you either work in a shop or you get a trade. That's it. You might mm. get A levels, you might get one A level and show off about it over the park. No one goes to university, and boom, door closed. You're working class. Good luck with it. So that's what that was. The first massive twist was. I was working in a watch shop. By now, I'd gone about... My dad had just sat me down when I was 17 and went, you're not going to university because we've got no money to help you with. And my dad was earning just enough for me to get no help from the government. So that was it. I just thought, that's my education finished. Where am I going to get fucking 10, 20 grand from to go to university? ain't going to happen. So uh, I was buying and selling watches and I slowly became, if this was a movie, uh, (laughs) more and more sort of angry and je- let's not know no, let's not try and dress it up jealous in the most shallow way of some of the people that were coming in to buy watches never when it was foreign people if it was like an african prince or someone from the middle east or an american tourist it didn't affect me but when it was a white boy like me sat there mm-hmm. with his silver-haired dad choosing his graduation rolex i started to have these um not physically violent but sort of socially violent Thoughts, these sort of fuck you society, angry thoughts about. I'm pretty sure I felt roughly as bright as that 18 year old lad I was just talking with. I'm 18. Why is he sat there and I'm not? And it's the sort of the coin starts to drop. Oh shit, man, it's a structural inequality. but it's hidden. It wasn't a thing. I wasn't aware I'd missed out on anything. I was perfectly happy. And then all of a sudden, it was like Truman Show. I reached the edge of the the sky. I was like, what <laughs> the fuck? Oh my god, I could punch through this if I wanted. And that was bubbling there. And then I suppose the plot twist, I mean, it, it was almost filmic. The smoke cleared at Strawberry Sunday's nightclub where I was chewing my head off in the corner <laughs> at five in the morning. And this girl was about two inches taller than me, literally like a model off a cat. one I'm 5'10". She was also 5'10", Zoe, but in heels, obviously, she was taller than me. She's come across the the dance floor and just giving me a number. No words Nothing, no I language. What on earth was appealing about me going for Stephen Hawking, as I call it, mm. on the dance floor? I have no idea. <laughs> um, Do you not give so, her a
1: bit of a smolder or a bit of a look that kind of
2: got our attention? I was capable wink. of smoldering. This, this is five in the morning, floors <laughs> swilling with Red Bull, and like one dreg of water left in my water bottle. I live for the weekend. I sold watches in the week. For, I live for the weekend, and so I started dating Zoe. And, of course, we're both 18, so our choice were to go to my nan's house, where I was living at the time, because I had this row with my dad, so I was living at um, a housing association flat with my nan in the box room, or to stay at hers. She was living at Halls, first year of university. And I was waking up at Halls on the Monday morning, and she would go off, say, because I often had Monday off, she'd wander off at 10am to sit on some grass with middle-class people and open a Penguin Classic and laugh about literature. Well, I recovered enough to stick myself on a train like a 50-year-old broken peasant old man to drag myself to sell jewellery in London. I thought, fuck this. That's the biggest twist of my life. I was smoking a cigarette on a fag break at work. We had a smoking room. And I actually wrote in, I wrote in my diary, but not that I'm an ex-smoker life insurance because I said I've never smoked, um, i wrote in my diary you know today's the day i'm going to change my life and i went i went home that night and i looked up how to do a levels at home totally on your own cuz the only way i've ever achieved anything it was without any fucking helping me the less people i've got back in me the harder I punch i don't know what that says about me but it's just the truth so I, there's national extensions college it still exists shout out to you guys they sent me an it was it, internet was around but we were just it was slow
0: hmm. so they sent me yeah.
2: a they sent me a box a cardboard box with A-level sociology in it. I was 20, 20 years old. I got the fastest A grade in sociology A-level from enrolment to exam ever. And I had to sit as a, an external student on a slightly separate humiliating table. I've got a picture, it's at my mum's house of me shaking Betty B. Freud's hand because I won this award. And of course, as soon as I touched that 21st birthday, the world of university opens up a lot more because you're counted as a mature student, even though mm. you can still... Party with the eighteen-year-olds, so one A-levels enough. I knew that's what I needed was one A-level, and I needed a good grade, so I got the A. Then I had my pick. That's the biggest twist of my. If that had not happened, if that smoke had not cleared, and that girl had not come over and given me her number, and we fell in love, we went out for a couple of years. I've just followed her to the same university. That was the extent of my selection process. But if that hadn't happened, I don't think anything else would have followed, mm. because although this, the bubbling resentment was there to do with class I think I would have just smoked my way into it or taken drugs into it or rebelled into it I don't think I would have realized how ignorant I was I've got this this brain I'd never used it I didn't know I honestly didn't know who wrote The Importance of Being Earnest I I thought Jane Austen Oscar Wilde I didn't know who any of these people were I obviously knew Shakespeare was and I knew who Dickens was from my pathetic GCSEs that I squandered I knew nothing else and I thought I'm gonna win now but so it was more like that, that
0: realization that you were in charge of your future and you could change that and do something about it, really.
2: Yeah, and I got—I was the only person that got got a first in my in my year as well. So I was still so you know, like in one of those films where people just someone starts punching and they can't stop, and then long after mm. the bit of wood has gone to dust or long after their opponent is dead, they're still beating the pulp. That's how I went at education, and of course I came out of uni. I'm like, oh, I, I don't know if it was a, whatever the opposite of a nervous breakdown is. But I had it a sort of ner- a nervous connect. Something got plugged in, and I've never been able to unplug it. And it's just, and incredible. I, I went straight out of that it, it, and into advertising and creative planning.
1: It's it's, fr- it's almost frightening, isn't it? To imagine that you know maybe seconds later, if Zoe had walked off somewhere <laughs> else. You know what I mean, and you wouldn't then have had that moment. And then, but that's all the talent that we don't get. That's all the diversity
0: yeah.
2: that we don't get. They're all the people that are not at Oxford, not at Cambridge, not at Durham, not at the any other painfully, ironically titled Russell Group universities. They're not less clever than you guys that went. They just never got the chance or the encouragement, mm, yeah, or ever, or more likely even realised it was a possibility. And by the time they did, they're twenty five, they're knackered, they've probably got kids, they're fucked. It's too late. Uh, I was lucky. Freak bit of luck mixed with a bit of dry... It's a twist. A deus ex machina, well, the hand don't... of God.
1: Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Because I think you said in other interviews that actually the way you were brought up and with your dad there, it was, this is how your life was, is going to be. It's going to be set out and that those hopes and dreams weren't even part of the picture because it was, that, that was blocked off almost.
2: And that's true. That's That's... that's... All my, You know, Dan has done amazing, no doubt about it, my best mate Dan. He's done really well in tech. He's got a brain in his head. But none of us went to university. None of us. I did, I mean, but none, none of the others. No one in my street went to university. This is, we're not talking about the 1960s or the 1970s. This is recent. We're talking about in, in, yeah, in, the, noughty, in the noughties here. Social mobility is le- is less now. Less. Thank God we're finally realising the inequalities between uh, gender and, and colour uh, and race, but we need to get to the bottom of the inequalities between uh, class and, and social background as well because no-one seems to give a shite about that. Mm.
1: You, you mentioned about going into advertising and copywriting, and obviously that then leads into your career with comedy. It's interesting because I suppose when you follow a passion point like comedy, and we've had many actors and actresses on here as well who've done the same sort of process... I'm not going to dramatize it in terms of the Hollywood story of rags to riches. but Often you need the adversity, don't you, to to really push you to to follow that passion? Uh, you, you didn't really have that because you had a good career. You had you would you enjoyed the copywriting. You were you enjoying marketing from. What I understand. That's why so when Fra- Fran had... asked, me,
2: when Fran asked me about the twist, it was confusing because there's I've, there's been th- massive twists in mm. in my accidents in my life. Uh, And this was, it was a sort of negative accident that enabled me to get recognised so quickly in comedy. I'll explain what I mean is, so I've got all of this going on. You've got to bear in mind, if you're 18, and you don't even know who Oscar Wilde is, and you want to end up with a first in English four years later, including the (laughs) A-level period, there is nothing to do but read. Read, Mm. read, read. So I was doing the the syllabus, but then I was also, I I literally went from Jane Austen through to Zola and back again. I'm gesturing to my library wall of fiction listeners. I've got (laughs) to collect books. Um, So I was was studying the things I was supposed to study, and then I was waking up and reading Charlotte Bronte or, or whoever as well, just so I could... I had to learn language from scratch. I had basic Essex vocabulary. I was bright. I had natural intelligence, but I didn't know what the word impudent meant, for example. Never heard it in my life. Never seen it written down. Who are you supposed to ask? You remember, Mm. this is 1998. So yes, plenty of internet, but it wasn't like Google. There was no Google. There wasn't um, a dictionary you could click on. So I had to learn the diacritic alphabet so that I wasn't making an idiot of myself and saying impudent or impudent or or impudently or something. I needed to know all the cognates of impudent, for example, impudently, impudence. Um, So I started collecting word cards. I collected index cards with new words as I encountered them and little reminders how to pronounce them. I I was so busy doing all of that that by the time my degree spat me out at the other end and I'd done a little bit in creative writing, I got headhunted by this ad agency. Theatre, stand-up, never heard of it, never seen it. I had no interest in it. It, You know, it might as well have told me um, I was going to become a a graduate of the Arabic language. It was that far from from my world. Um, You know, when I was growing up, my dad watched Bernard Manning and fucking racist stuff like that. I knew what the young ones were and Blackadder and things. But so far as there was this thing called stand-up, alternative stand-up, that's what sort of middle-class people did Mm -hmm. and I'd heard of it vaguely I didn't know what the Edinburgh Festival was I thought it was something to do with ballet I mean nothing and the one the uni I went to happened to not have a stand-up night so I end up 25 years old dropping into this plum job in an ad agency on nine grand a year by the way to the starts. So this is I'm on nine grand a year in what year would this be 2001 but and the most amazing job you know being paid to think up headlines and stuff like that and I very quickly made it to head of copy within 18 months that's the point you're talking about where I'm riding high earning more money than anyone in my land, yes, more money yes. than my dad at this point, crucially. and uh, But I was I always had been the, the funny one, but then everyone's got a funny blo- bloke or funny girl in their group. you always got a funny mate, haven't you? you know, they don't yeah. become a stand-up, but people at work, because they were from a more culturally rich or middle-class, or, or there was a much more diverse background, they kept saying to me, you've got to try stand-up. I've never met anyone as funny as you. you can just think of funny stuff like that. It was like an Asperger's thing where I could just think of a, a joke. It probably is something not wired right. I could just, boom, think of shit like that. I improvise all of my um, canings and all of my stand-ups are all improvised. So that's what I did. I just I decided to try it like you would try a bungee jump or a dare or, I don't know, if you're that way inclined, you might have one threesome in your life or you might go to Vegas <laughs> once in your life or you might streak. one. You know, just something wild to say in the nursing home. Yeah. You're never going to guess what I did once. But I didn't have a threesome. I decided to go uh, on stage, unpaid. I literally Googled stand-up comedians uh, for, and click the first link of the first class. What, you just rang up and un- said,
0: can I just have a slot? Yeah.
2: I can remember now, it was a shit, it was in the the creative, my creative director, uh, I I went on the computer in my lunch hour and Googled stand-up comedy London and clicked the first link, Comedy Cafe, down by Old Street, phoned the first number and said, how does it work? And said, you just come along on the Wednesday and people who want to have a go can go on for two minutes and have a go. Lucky for you, because everyone's in Edinburgh at the moment, I've got space in two weeks time. Didn't know what he was fucking talking about. My next wow. Google, Edinburgh comedy. I didn't know this fringe was a thing. I didn't know the what thing. Pe- yeah. the Perrier Award was. Right in the same year, it's like so much chance and luck involved. Live at the Apollo starts on TV. So alternative comedy gets its first mainstream commission. This is like, what, 2002, 2003, Jack D. Um, so I had two weeks and I thought, I better go and watch comedy. So I went to the comedy store and watched one night of comedy to see what it was all about. And I went to a Jonglers. That's all I did. I went twice. I thought, fucking hell, I'm definitely funnier than that. I won't say who I saw. (laughs) Um, So what I mean by the negative accident is, what are the chances that I could have got to 25 years old without ever watching or seeing stand-up? And part of the problem with some comedians you see coming through now, they've watched too much American stand-up or they've watched too much of me or someone else or Jimmy Carr. If you watch too much of anything you will find your own style eventually if you've got talent, but it can take years. Whereas I didn't even mm-hmm. have punchline. I'm doing fucking, I went, that's the end of that bit. I used to just go that and people would be like, and just clap because I told them to. I didn't really, <laughs> I don't believe in punchlines. What a waste of time. Just be, but as long as you've been sustainably funny for the five minutes, why are well, you sort of what getting your knickers in a twist about some device from How the middle ages? How did the ages. first gig go? Moderate. Six, seven out of 10. Not good, not bad. Dis- a disappointing sort of Just okay. It was only three minutes, remember, but there were two big laughs in those three minutes and that was enough to get me hooked.
0: And did you prepare at all or did you just turn up and improvise?
2: I took the whatever I'd been saying that week in the office, making everyone laugh. I think I was had some patter going. I was struggling with some. I think I'd split up with with Lorraine at that point temporarily. I, know, I, do, I was doing a bit about, oh, I'm having an affair with myself. And uh, I've been get, developing it at the pub, making everyone laugh about, you know, when a man's signals. it's like it's like you're having an affair with yourself, running off with yourself, all the sort of filthy banking routine, basically, which is what all men do <laughs> on their first stand-up gig. So I did that. Were you nervous, though? Were you scared? Uh, awful. I had to have hypnotherapy for my nerves in the end, yeah. Really bad physical symptoms, diarrhoea, throwing up in a bin. I lost half a stone, I think, in the first six months. Uh, but I booked two gigs because I knew from when I was pitching at work when at the advertising agency, when I was standing up, I knew how bad I would shake. So I knew it was going to be that times 100. So I made sure I booked two so that, because the first one I guessed correctly, I'd be so numb, I wouldn't be able to process. I don't really remember it properly because it's like a trauma thing, like a plane yeah. dropping in uh, altitude and you remember it, but you don't remember it sort of thing because your adrenaline's on so much. So I booked the next night at the Kingshead Theatre in North London. Funnily enough, there was a comedian who was on the first night and then on with me the second night. A, a female comedian who was who was a lot more experienced than me, and she said to me when I um, came off stage on the first night, she went, "You're really funny. You've got natural ability. You should definitely do tomorrow." But just to warn you, all men talk about masturbation. It's a bit. It's a bit what they did in the eighties. You might want to try and vary your stuff, which was excellent advice. But I didn't have time to rejig it. So I'll never forget, I went on to, I went on at the King's Head the next night, I went, I've just been literally been told that uh, joking about masturbation is somewhat retro, but we are in (laughs) North London, so let's just go with that, shall we? And that sort of made a sort of satirical remark about how everyone liked everything kitchen retro. And then I felt something else, a bigger laugh, a more subversive, slightly outside the mainstream laugh. Mm. Uh, and then it would be another three years before I found my gold mine, which was autobiographical stuff talking about my dad, and that's when I just had to leave the agency i couldn't I just physically couldn't do both things anymore.
0: You talked about the nerves and then being pretty crippling when you first started out, but was there ever a point that you thought maybe I can't do this, maybe they'll get the better yeah. of me like how did you work through that?
2: I would say the second the second night i i it was a cue to go on, and I was like I oh, just fuck this and I started to get my coat and went and then the guy I never, I've got a lot of thank you for spent so just do it you'll regret it forever if you don't do it so the second night I definitely was getting my jacket and bag together could remember I had no attachment to it I've, I've all all mm. I want to do is write That's all I've ever wanted to do I I'm, mean I'm, I'm deep in working on a novel at the moment I've published one novel already which no one bought but I loved writing it and I publish another one I don't care if no one buys them I love writing enjoy and the process I was writing for I was writing for a living. What? I didn't need this. This was just... I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? I'm not an egomaniac. I get so much praise at work. I don't, need, I don't need more praise. But I'm glad I did. And then over, I would say, those first three months, everything was sort of condensed for me. What well, Would be... If speak to a normal comedian, they'd be talking about their first three years. But I think we're... By now, I'm 27, 28. We're late. So late to the party. Late to my degree. Late to my first proper job. Late to my first gig. That something just... He's running faster in me. So over those three months, there were times where I died for the first time, which I didn't think I could because I was so naturally funny that even when I didn't know what I was doing, I was able to keep an audience's sympathy because they liked me. But then I got booed off up the Creek Greenwich. Uh, I was in tears on the way out. It's the worst thing. It's the only time it's ever ever happened to me. It's only happened once. Um, I probably shouldn't say that because obviously the normal thing is for it to happen hundreds of times. And I thought, you know what? I'm not the bollocks. I have got this morbid fear of starting to think I'm something special and turning into a wanker. That comes from my dad. So I did consider it then. <laughs> and then uh, one gig after that, I decided to pour all of the nerves into the energy because I've got I'm this very, like, sort of screw tight en- yeah. energetic person anyway. So someone said, why don't you double down on it? Like, pour pour it all in so you can feel no nerves at all. So I left no pauses. And went like this feral animal. I, fucking people loved it. I, I was surprised they could even follow what I was saying. And then I did it again and again. Then I entered the competition and I won it and then another one and I won it and I just kept winning everything I entered. And I thought, I'm on to something here. High energy, relentless, observation, aggressive, but the subject matter isn't aggressive. It's just that's what I'm supposed to be. So that's what I went with.
0: They say, don't they, that adrenaline like can be interpreted either excitement or anxiety so actually if you reframe yeah. the mentality around the adrenaline response you can actually channel it in the right direction
2: that's right yeah i would i would agree with that and then once once i won that um so i won laughing horse and then the, some of the big agents started sniffing thinking this, this guy you know with no experience even though i was old really for a new comic but got some fucking weird shit going on my skin where i look like younger than my age so i was able to get away much younger so they could market me as what i mean so yeah i just signed that and then i thought i'm gonna go to edinburgh see what happens so i jacked in my job and went to edinburgh in 2006 i got nominated for the newcomer and then the main award the next year and again and again and when i won it in 2010 that's when things really sort of started for me i would say
1: my first experience seeing you was actually on the spin-off of i'm a celeb that's right um How important was that for you in in taking you to that? Because obviously a national exposure and it's not just those sort of niche comedy audiences that are part of Edinburgh Fringe. It's a a huge exposure. Did, Did you notice a change after going on something like that?
2: Mass- yeah, so there's two strands with a with a comedian. This is absolutely crucial to remember that as well as I did and I was able to do live stand-up without delay on ITV2 to 800,000 people a night, they were not a comedy audience. Mm. So what it did was it massively drove awareness, meaning I could no longer go to the shops like I used to do, but was slower to build bums on seats in theatres. Nothing mm. wrong with that whatsoever pay your bills do what you've got to do i slowly started to realize shit i'd rather be more able to go to the supermarket but have four four nights at the hammersmith apollo that way around sort of thing lots of people have both Romish, both can't go to the supermarket 10 nights at the apollo he, he does everything I love writing and I love I love stand-up and I love, I love, love love my TV work too. But you've got to understand the different types of it. If you're on a comedy panel show, if you're on Have I Got News For You, Mock the Week, that's going to drive your, your numbers and people are going to see you in a comedy context it's a comedy audience. If you're on Loose Women, like my mate Judy is, if you're on, I'm doing a daytime TV with Steph McGovern at the moment, that's going to drive awareness and get your pedigree up. But it might not necessarily put bums on seats in the theatre, so you need to make sure you do both.
1: You know, you mentioned about this energetic style of comedy, uh, so you know, a brash side to you, but something that was a plot twist to both of us actually was the, your passion for mental health, mm. challenging these ideas of masculinity where, you know, you've done a lot of projects on this. And obviously you've got a few things going on at the moment and you're working with the Metro and you've got your podcast as well. Where does that stem from and why is that so important to you?
2: So it started long before, not that it's not always been important, but it's only really become trendy to do hashtag mental health in the last four or four or five years isn't it it's particularly yeah. about men as well like mm. we men were perfect until about five years ago according according to everyone else um but i long before that that I was at the more sort of gritty end though working with rethink who work with pe- people who are a lot more seriously ill and help with resources. It, it's not that I'm, I'm saying, obviously, depression and insecurity and anxiety are massively serious issues and people take their lives every day. But there's a whole nother world with people who are fucking housebound, warden assisted, got cognitive impairments, severe life altering mental health symptoms where you can't, you know, you'll never have a girlfriend, you'll never have a job, you'll never have a boyfriend, whatever. So that's what my brother has. So that's how I got into it through Rethink. Once I was in that world and... I started to realise that there was this whole gap where sort of men were sort of ki- men still kill themselves seven times more than women. It's the most likely thing to kill a man is suicide. It's the most likely cause of death for a man under 50. And uh, I thought, well, that's not right. And what I noticed was every time you tried to... Not that like maternity mental health and everything that's happening with women and all the voices we're hearing at the moment with historic sexual abuse. What people don't understand is we can have both conversations. Uh, I think what's dawning on some of the more enlightened is that if we do not fix men, feminism is going to hit a brick wall of uh, of, of fucked masculinity. Because until we fix the way men think about themselves and their own self-esteem, they're not going to believe in equal wages. They're going to need stuff like that to make their fractured egos feel important on the inside. I earn more money than women because I'm man. That ain't going anywhere until we fix blokes. And so that started that conversation. I'd like to think I was part of that five, six years ago. Then I realised it got taken over, and no disrespect to these people, by educated, well-meaning men in cardigans with digestives and mugs and circles of men able to express them. Finally, I can speak about my feelings. I'm happy for all of those men. People who are carpenters and tilers or grew up with, in one parent households or they don't have the language skills or they're too shy or awkward to do it. So, I thought, Right. That's the area I'm going to go into. Working class, twisted up masculinity of all colors. I want to get into that area. The boys' WhatsApp group, but brought to life as a mental health discussion. The boys' WhatsApp group is chat shit, here's some hacked iCloud, pictures of some boobs, here's a car accident. <coughs> oh, by the way, do you think Gary's got depression? That's what the boys' WhatsApp group's like. Porn, porn, hacked iCloud, little bit of personal information. So I thought, well, there's, that must be how men's brains work. Humour and filth cotton-walled around what I really want to say.
0: Mm.
2: and as far as i can tell it's working i don't want to even change the names in case i give people away but some of the direct messages I'm, i'm getting on instagram from people i don't follow and don't know just putting down anonymously stuff that happened to them when they were little just for someone to tell why are they telling me that my last program was about body hair and should men shave their balls or not that's what we that's what we talked about but there's something in getting men to talk about what seems like comic subjects that enables them to access the 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 darker stuff and we're scared of it you know men need help in that area we have to develop and i truly believe it will fix wider society
0: and do you think working in a sort of mental health space and all the initiatives that you've been part of has made you more aware of your own mental health and any periods where you need to take that sort of time out at all based on things that are going on in your own life
2: so it is a good question i always wish i had something more juicy to say because it would probably end up in the newspaper and i could get some funding for an amazing charity <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm very lucky i did have some shit that went a bit wonky in my brain when i when i first hit, hit the headlines but then within six months i did this thing called a hoffman process which was brilliant residential group therapy course i had a bit of a um, an explosive temper towards myself issue. Like I like to, s- I could smash up a telly or a computer monitor. It didn't, doesn't fit with the rest of my personality.
0: Mm. You know, I've
2: never harmed a human being, hit an animal in my life, and yet I was doing sort of weird shit to myself. So I would not got that fixed. Mm. But it was never, it wasn't. It was never got out of hand, and it, and the process works. And I've never had a recurrence since. Touch wood.
0: And do you think sort of those experiences have helped with your resilience? Because you have to be, I presume, quite resilient as a a comedian, like how you get back mm. up, you get people heckling you, you get people critiquing you. Like, do you think, yeah. would you describe yourself as a quite resilient person?
2: Yeah, I think I would. And um, yeah, all of that stuff, all of having your writing thrown in the bin and advertising on a daily basis. I mean, the amount of times I ran in with what I thought was definitely the solution for Vodafone or Cadbury's. We'd work for days, my art, and it's just, and it's, it's in the bin two seconds later and never mm. talked about again. I, after about doing that about 200 times, you start to not have, you don't engage emo- emotionally with that process. You're able just to engage the creative bit. And I've brought that to stand up.
0: Um, you referenced that a bit about sort of resources. So I've got another bit of a plot twist question for you. Is there anyone in your life that you would describe as a bit of a sort of unexpected person who has had a big influence on you?
2: Well, it would be, you know, these sort of... Um, they probably weren't middle-aged at the time, so sorry, Maggie, but these sort of middle-aged... <laughs> Women who took me under their wing at at university. I mean, it's my role models up till that point have been like alpha males, or I don't know. I had role models. I was told I was literally brought up by my dad. So you rely on no one, look up to no one. No one's gonna give you any money. Most of what you do will fail. You will pick up the pieces. So I never really had someone to sort of look up to and and make a guru or a mentor in my life. And then I get to uni, I start the literature component of the degree. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed picking apart Jane Austen and talking about semiotics and post-structuralism and wanking off all over all these big words. I loved all of that. But there was an opportunity to sit this exam at the end of my second year to cross over to the hallowed creative writing degree, which has got a decent you know, success rate of getting people published and putting people in creative industries, as it indeed would put me in as a copywriter. And then uh, my interview is with Sue G, a very accomplished, award-winning novelist, and Maggie Butt, um, who is is now an accomplished and award-winning poet, and she writes novels under Maggie Brooks. So these were the two gatekeepers. Nothing in common with me. Educated, middle-class women who, to me, just look like these distant, auntie-ish figures. I submitted my creative writing, which no doubt was awful big red line through it and I just begged them for a meeting I just, I begged them for a face-to-face I was so wanted to express myself with creative writing I knew I was behind with my language skills but I was catching up and they just gave me a chance basically and they sort of let me in even though I'd failed this exam more or less and I've just I mean so it's
1: almost surprising hearing you that you've only written one novel
2: I <laughs> know I've written a non-fiction <laughs> book as well I was too busy doing writing commercially either for tv or You know, I like making a living from it. I I don't really separate the two sort of thing. Um, And then Maggie, particularly as well, obviously Sue was a massive part of that. But Maggie, Maggie, but she's remained a mentor still. So I mean, just I mean, literally, literally last week we were on a a Zoom for her launch of her poetry collection. Every word she says, every email I get where she says I saw your thing and this and that, I hang on every word like I'm like I'm still 18. Not that I was 18 Mm. at college; I was 21. What an unexpected mentor for a chav yeah, like, like me
1: i would just want to ask because you, you mentioned that you, you know you've had three careers and throwing a bit of a plot twist in there because as you probably noticed any chance we can say plot twist we will <laughs> um but where next if you if you could rip up the script and there was something else you could do what would be part four
2: i know i i technically already have a novel out there but i wouldn't call myself a novelist i would happily sidestep into that, not even a sidestep, I don't think stand-up comedy and novel writing are remotely related professions, although you do get the odd stand-up who tries novel writing, very, very few become a successful novelist. I mean, So I would happily do that if that was one door. If there was another door with creating amazing sitcoms, I would probably have a little run through there as well. Either one of those would do. They're just both things I've not had time for because I'm addicted to making people We're laugh. You're always touring, aren't you? I'm just addicted to it. I'm hooked on it like a drug. I cannot. The the feeling of being on stage and messing around is just, it's not even got a little bit boring. It's like it's not lost 1%. If anything, I would say, as I've become more confident, it's increased in its appeal. But. that's sort one great thing about lockdown. I mean, the thing I'm working on at the moment. This is the second novel I've attempted during lockdown, so it's not like I'm, I'm successful. I just write for the pleasure. This one's coming at a thousand words a day, which has never happened to me before. I mean, I'm a fast wow. writer, and I just love it. I get up, I have my coffee, I let li- li- the characters speak to me. I don't have to do anything. I'm more like record, just sort of recording, really. Mm um so that just for the sheer could sit around in my pants and sheer pleasure carry on the lockdown lifestyle do the book <laughs> tours you know get get all the the hit you know uh, of ego being on stage and wanking off about my book and talking in bookshops i'd happily plot twist and go oh my god who thought he was gonna write a you know a whitbread uh, award-winning novel that would be the twist of the fucking century
1: yeah well, that'd be really cool well russell look, thank you so much for coming on plot twist it's a uh... It's been insightful, it's been funny, it's been brilliant. Oh, might be um,
0: Hopefully we'll see you at the uh, closing parties at, in Ibiza in September.
1: Oh,
2: I hope yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, that, well, that'd be the one. Either one it? of you into that sort of scene or not really?
0: I mean, if I can get out there, I'd love it.
2: It strikes me more as you like. You go and see the Fratellis if they reformed or something
1: in a basement in Camden. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've weirdly been a security guard in Ibiza for three weeks. Really? That was very... That's a yeah, plot twist. That's outside like passion. That is a plot oh, yeah, twist. That, that really is, is my plot twist. I mean, it's hard yeah. to tell you
2: who sat down, but how can I put it diplomatically? I wouldn't have had you for security. Maybe it's a big chair. <laughs>
0: yeah, it is quite well.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, thanks, Russell. That was brilliant. Thank my you. pleasure.
0: Well, thank you to Russell Kane on Plot Twist, but Tom, sorry, you were a bouncer in Ibiza. Yes, I was, (laughs) sir. Can we just tell me everything I need to know about that? Because I am just baffled.
1: Well, before you saw this swelped individual looking at you via a video conference call. (laughs) Uh, I was stacked and I was a student and I needed cash and I got offered the I got offered the opportunity to work out in Ibiza, do some maintenance and security for um uh yes, for somebody who was on my rugby team at the time.
0: Classic. You must have been the like smiliest, politest, most softly spoken bouncer, like Oh, excuse me, sorry to interrupt. Could you please make your way outside because you're far too drunk and rowdy. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I'd have been like, this guy's great.
1: Well, let's uh, not forget, Fran, that me and Russell, uh, we have a lot in common. We both love Ibiza. We've been out there. We've we've worked out there. We've been on holiday One there. in the club,
0: one outside the club.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, true. Uh, whereas some people are at the Fratelli's, you know, just uh, sipping their peach daiquiri. So. Yeah,
0: I think I missed that that was an insult really towards me. I think I was just like, <laughs> laugh it off and move back on to Tom.
1: But he was great. He was great. He was great fun. And much like his stand up gigs, he's got that energy. He's got that passion. He, he was just funny all the time. Very thoughtful as well.
0: Yeah, but what was quite cool is for someone who's so high energy on stage and actually almost to the point of like erraticness, which is what makes it so brilliant, he is clearly so determined mm. and focused. Like hearing him talk about studying and that that acknowledgement, I just need to get that A level, that'll get me into university. He like completed it in the quickest time, got the highest grade. And even now, talking about what he wants to do next, you know. He's got that laser vision of like, I'm gonna achieve this and I'm capable of doing it. And he really goes for it. And I think that was almost quite a juxtaposition of what you'd expect based on his sort of stand-up routines.
1: As long as he gets his nine hours sleep. But the um, recharge.
0: Yeah, that but yeah, joking
1: aside, I find it quite inspiring actually because he, he spoke about how he wasn't part of that the world that he's in now, that was never part of, of his radar, his thinking, and what his family mm. were used to. But it shows that there are so many capable people, so many talented, driven, uh, creative individuals, but they just don't realise what's, you know, these opportunities Mm. are available. And it's he kind of had those moments where he uh, bumps into that girl at the nightclub and it (laughs) opens up this whole world of opportunity and he's just seized it.
0: But he clearly had that determination from a young age because he talked about, didn't he, that moment of, I realised that the only thing stopping me doing that was essentially me and mm. having the belief that I could and suddenly he just went away and was like I'm gonna do it and actually also someone who's very self-aware really clearly very sort of intuitive about his own emotions and trying to understand other people's
1: yeah I find that quite interesting because it wasn't just about his own perspective and he's he was very open about it some of the difficult moments that he's been through in his career but it was actually just about others as well about getting others to talk and open up and Yeah, that was, like we said in the interview, it was a bit of a plot twist in itself.
0: Yeah, and he's clearly channeling that into what he's doing. So his podcast, the charities that he supports. I I did love when he described that sort of male WhatsApp group of all like the frantic top level conversation and, and how they can subtly sort of bring in those bigger questions around how people are. So, yeah, it was it was lovely to hear him open up about that.
1: It was. And obviously, Fran, you and I are very passionate about mental health, but as are now, mm. uh, they have a charity partner called The Mix. So we've just had Mental Health Awareness Week, which makes it quite pertinent. So if anyone needs any mental health support or guidance, please visit Now's charity partner website, The Mix.
0: Oh, Russell, I honestly, we said it in the intro, but that is exactly what I needed. It's really got me sort of energised, motivated and actually pretty inspired to get back out into the world.
1: Well, Fran, you did say you've got a busy diary, but just remember, you know, we need to be back here again next week.
0: Don't worry, I've always got time for my old pal Tom and I will see you then.
1: (laughs) Right, well, I'll see you then.